Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Elegance Bratton, the film director who turned his story of being a young gay man who found unexpected strength, camaraderie, and support when he joined the Marines after being rejected by his mother into a critically acclaimed film called The Inspection. That's later on. We'll also meet actor Enrico Colantoni. You know him from his roles on hit TV shows like Just Shoot Me, Veronica Mars, and Westworld, but you love him in his crowd-favorite portrayal of the alien Malthazar in the science fiction comedy Galaxy Quest. Can I help you? Sir, I understand this is a terrible breach in protocol, yeah, but... I should come to my house, Yes, I beg you to hear our plea. We are Thermians from the uh, Klaatu Nebula. Our people are being systematically hunted and slaughtered by Rathaceris Fatukri. We are to meet in negotiation, however. Our efforts in this regard have been disastrous. Please, Commander, you are our last hope. First, though, let's get to know, all the way from Cornwall in southwest England, Jeremy Brown and John Cleave, two of the founding members of the Sea Shanty Singing Group, Fisherman's Friends. They have an incredible story. They were discovered by a music producer who visited their small fishing village of Port Isaac and then propelled them to stardom. The recordings of traditional sea shanties have topped the charts, and they've played on the main stage of Glastonbury in front of 100,000 people and for royalty at the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. Their story has inspired two films starring James Purefoy, Fisherman's Friends, and the sequel, which is in theaters right now, Fisherman's Friends, One and All. Now, their incredible story is a stage show called Fisherman's Friends the Musical, which has just touched down at the Royal Alexandra Theatre in Toronto after a successful run in the UK. So let's get to know them. Let's spend some time with Jeremy Brown and John Cleave, two of the founding members of Fisherman's Friends. What shall we do with a drunken sailor? What shall we do with a drunken sailor? What shall we do with a drunken sailor? Early in the morning. I have seen the movies, I've seen the stage play now, and during uh, all those, there's a lot of talk about Cornwall and how special Cornwall is. Yeah. I've never been there. Give me the tourist version of why I should go there. Oh, right. So it's right if uh, the end of the southwest of England... If it was a foot, Cornwall would be the toe mm. that pokes down into the uh, North Atlantic. But there's something that is very special about it to you. It sounds beautiful. John, you made it sound beautiful. Jeremy, what is it, though? You were born and raised there, and there is a loyalty to the place. Yeah, there is. That, we, that is. We don't really feel sort of British, to be honest, or English. You know, we sort of feel we sort of more sort of Celtish, yeah. Celtic, and uh, we sort of align with Ireland and Scotland and Wales more in a way. Yeah. And uh, there's a river that runs pretty much between us and England. So, we, you know, we feel like we're almost an island. Right. But we are aware as we travel around, we're saying Cornwall and people just don't know where it is, you know. So, so like John says, it's right at the southwest tip. And we get all the Atlantic storms that come across. We're, un, you know, we're un, unguarded for them. Our harbour is a nightmare when it's rough weather. We have to try and get the boats out to safety somewhere. So, but it is rugged and that makes it so beautiful, you know. And the water's usually blue and it's, it's a cracking place. Yeah, really nice. And do either of you fish? You still fish? Yeah, I do a bit of fishing there. My son does most most of the fishing yeah. there. So I'm I'm fifth, fifth generation fisherman. So my son's sixth generation. So it just goes on down the line, really. Like I said, I learned from my father, and he learned from me, and 
I sort of kicked my father off the boat and took the boat over, and then my son did it to me. So it's got a certain, you know, certain thing about it, you know. And John, how yeah. many generations are you in? Uh, well, I'm not a fisherman, but I was. Our name, Fisherman's Friends, comes from the fact that when we first started, we were yeah. made up of uh, a ten of us. Then uh, five were fishermen. And the rest of us were the friends. So right. uh, the friends were defined as people who were either in the Coast Guard or in our lifeboat service, which mm. is similar to your Coast Guards. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one was a marine engineer. So that's what um, that's how we all fell together, fishermen's friends. Tell me about sea shanties. Define them, because I think a couple of years ago there was a TikTok sensation where uh, online people yeah. were making up sea shanties. That's yeah. not what you do. No, it's interesting the comparison between the way. Uh, sea shanties first evolved and how they evolved with TikTok. Yeah. So with TikTok, it went viral overnight. Uh, it was the song The Wellerman. Soon may the Wellerman come to bring us sugar and tea and rum. One day when the tongue in is done, we'll take our leave and go. Back in the day when people were, the, you had these massive crews of men to do all the work on these big sailing ships and you would have people of every nationality on a boat. So like the Pequod in uh, Moby Dick, mm -hmm. there's over 20 different nationalities on, on uh, board the, the Pequod. Right. Um, so you would have Polynesian influences, African influences, Native American influences, Irish influences, Scandinavian, all, all those. And uh, in these songs that evolved over time, each culture brought their own little bit to the song. You're listening to Jeremy Brown and John Cleave, two of the founding members of the sea shanty singing group Fisherman's Friends on The Richard Krause Show. And of course, as they went around the world on these trips, sometimes would last three or four years on, on whaling ships especially, um, uh, they were put into a port and sometimes the crew would hop off and maybe join another ship yeah. and take that version of the song with them. Right. And so rather than go viral overnight, it went viral over about four years back, <laughs> back in the 1700s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then over the next 500 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. And Jeremy, tell me about your connection to these songs. Uh, you must have been hearing them since you were... Okay. Well, I mean, the thing was, I mean, when I first um, went fishing with my, my father when I was about 13 or 14, really, we used to um, use blocks and tackles. You know, mm. we didn't we didn't always have a winch for every job. We have sort of now. Do you know what I mean? So, so actually, father used to keep time with a sort of chant. So right. yeah, not a recognisable song with words and that, right. but definitely a sort of chant, so that all three of us would lay back on the rope at the same time. And then one day, him and the other crewman were off the boat, and I thought I could rig up a thing here and use the winch. <laughs> so when they came back aboard, they said, "Oh, who did you have to help you tighten the moorings up?" And I said, "I did it myself." <laughs> So I, I think I've sort of, you know, signed a death knell in Port Isaac of the shanty, to be honest with you. Cause I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've done a bit now to sort of resurrect it again, you know? Yeah, yeah. And these are really your oral tradition, your oral history. Mm. Yeah, these mm. songs. They're, yeah. they're, part, yeah. they're so deeply embedded in the culture. They are. And I, I mean, you can take different songs and you'll find a different historical perspective with, mm -hmm. within that. So, for instance, the Mexican-American Wars, there are two shanties related to, to that. One is Santiana, which we did a little bit of earlier on, um, which was uh, the Mexican general. And there's also a shanty about the General Zachary Taylor, just called General Taylor. So, um, there's another song called A Drop of Nelson's Blood, which is about Admiral Lord Nelson's state funeral and his golden chariot that he was, uh, yeah, yeah. He was taken along in. So um, you, can, you can dissect the lyrics of these songs and trace back different historical events. They may be 
um, important historical events, or they might be just singing about a particularly cruel captain mm. or about a girl that they met in uh, in Calio or uh, Valparaiso or wh wh wherever they went. So they could be trivial things or they could be big, important things. There has been a book, two movies. <laughs> it's now a stage show. Tell me what it's like to see that story, your I've story, on quite, stage. Quite taken aback, actually, mm. watching it yesterday. I really enjoyed it. I've seen it four times now, and it seems to get better every time. Mm. And uh, just I sort of sat there and took it all in. I just thought, blimey, we're in, you know, going across the Atlantic. And it is. it did It did get me yesterday yeah. to think what has actually taken place. And the, and the musical was very sort of faithful to our spirit. It's all about sort of fun, you know, and yeah. camaraderie in the village thing, you know. Having so. a pint and singing Exactly song. that, yeah. yeah, in the pub, in the Golden Lion in the pub. <laughs> yeah, and the Golden Lion is still there. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the Golden Line for people who haven't seen the the movies or the show yet is kind of the the heartbeat of Port Isaac. It is the the pub that everyone goes yep. to, yeah. uh, before and after they go to sea. It seems like, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. where where the Fisherman's Friends really came together. Yeah, we got Fisherman's Friends Corner there, haven't we? Yeah, there, where yeah. we we first started singing. Yeah, in there. we all so, so we, we sort of all met up and gravitated to this one corner. So now yeah. we sort of claimed it now. So I think we were actually shoved into the corner. Yeah, the I think yeah, yeah. It's rude them to close the door. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Uh, we all got together in Jeremy's brother's sitting room because all we knew, um, this is in about 1990, yeah. we knew one verse and one chorus <laughs> of every song. Right. So we thought, this is not good enough. If we're going to sing properly, we need yeah. to. So we nailed it down and gave different songs to different people that were there and say, right, you learn that one, you learn that one. And they were all call and response songs. Yeah. So that's how we, we, we got going, really. But uh, as Jeremy said, you know, to reflect on the fact that everything um, to this moment has come from that circumstance is 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 astounding and if we feel quite say you should never be proud of stuff well, proud, we, we proud, are, proud and humbled i think really yeah. Yeah. i mean we'd never had any we never really had any great ambition you mm. know to get out of port isaac it just all happened by luck and chance you know and is that true it, like it, like you watch this yeah, no, and, that, and you think oh, it's no, just it's like really a fairy tale almost yeah. you know mm. yeah no a music uh, arranger came down and uh, he said i think we could have a bit of fun yeah. If we put a bit of backbeat to some of your songs and that sort of thing, you know, then we ended up uh, with our manager and it just sort of snowballed from there. And, yeah. and everything he said, he said, oh, it's going to be a film in this one day. And we all go, yeah, right. You know? <laughs> and then he said, oh, it's going to be a musical. We go, yeah, right. Yeah. And then, you're, you're going to do the main stage at Glastonbury. We go, yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, it, things are just happening. And it's just, mm. we just can't, don't know what's going to happen next, really. You know? So Glastonbury, we have to talk about that. Mm. Uh, it, there's, what, 100,000 people in the audience? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, well, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It was massive. I mean, we'd done it several times, but yeah. the, the main stage we did once, just after we were discovered, in yeah. fact, Jerry, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And that was astounding. But, I mean, we've also done uh, um, at the rugby, uh, rugby match, England-Australia, wow. 82,000 people there. Yes, and we all got given the wrong microphones, which was funny. Yeah. So Lefty, who stands next to me, is about four foot twelve, <laughs> you know, and I'm just just over six foot. So I was starting to stoop down and sing into his microphone. Yeah. It was a it, disaster. It was a bit of a, we had a lovely sound check. If you yeah. get a good sound check, then you've got to worry about what's going to happen in the performance. To be honest yeah, with you. Yeah. yeah. Sound check was fantastic. So we yeah. were all up, and then we walked out, and we just started singing. It was all to hell. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but yeah, we all sort of smile and carry on as a thing. You know, yeah. that's what we always do. Yeah. Try not to stop. You know, yeah. just carry on. You've been listening to Jeremy Brown. 
and John Cleave, two of the founding members of the Sea Shanty Singing Group Fisherman's Friends on the Richard Krause Show. If you find yourself in Toronto, check out the musical based on their story. It's called Fisherman's Friends the Musical, and it's at the Royal Alexandra Theatre. Let's spend some time with Enrico Colantoni. You know the talented actor from the sitcom Just Shoot Me. He played Keith Mars on the television series Veronica Mars. On the big screen, he's appeared in the films Galaxy Quest, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Contagion, and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, among many, many others. Today, we talk about his latest film, a comedy about four stoners, the self-proclaimed vandits, who have a bright idea to knock over a senior citizen's bingo hall on Christmas Eve. The movie is called Vandits. It's on VOD right now. In this segment, we talk about the unusual way he paid for theater school in New York City and how the cast and crew of Vandits persevered after all their equipment was stolen the night before they were to start shooting. Here's Enrico Colantoni. I didn't know that you went to the University of Toronto to study psychology and sociology. And how was that connected to acting for you? What what kind of leap was it from that to the American Academy, Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York City? Uh, you know what? I everybody everybody in my high school felt pressure to go on to right. you know post post secondary education, and yeah. I went to the U of T, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I took everything that was a general sort of <laughs> liberal arts right. kind of thing. I took an English class, a history class, psychology, sociology. I didn't know what I want to do, but I took one theater elective. <laughs> and the one theater elective was like, and that one teacher, Kathy Smith, God bless her, was mm -hmm. the first person in my life said, you know what, you should, you should think about doing this. And I go, really? You think? <laughs> All I needed was... Permission from one person in authority. And I was like, I just ran with it. She goes, yeah, go to New York. Why not? I go, okay, I'm going to go to New York. Wow. That's and it. what was your interest in acting before that? Was there one or was the, the theater school. course just kind of a, board, a bird course? Yeah. For you? Now, high school, uh, you know, I did a high school play. They thought it was a big old ham. Ah. Uh, that felt pretty good, though. But, you know, yeah. it was completely cut off at the knees when I got home. And even suggested that I wanted to be an actor. It was just like my brother got in there, my father got in there. It's just like, no, you're not. And I go, okay, no, I'm not. But then uh, at 21 years old, and you know what helped too, Richard, was heartbreak. This girl mm. broke my heart. Yep. I didn't know. I didn't know what was up, what was down. And a friend of mine says, "What do you love to do, Rico? What do you love to do?" <laughs> I, go, I don't know. I love doing that. He goes, "You should do it. You should do it." Wow. And it saved my life. I ran away from home to become an actor in New York City. It was great. And what was it like in those days to be an actor in New York? Like, were you living in, like, the, you hear yeah, the Yeah, it was at right? the 92nd Street Y. Yeah. It was at the 92nd Street Y with a bunch of other people who had homeless people. And, um, and, and it was great because the 92nd Street Y at the time was like a haven for arts. And, you know, people would come and they would have theater, music. And it was just like, wow, this was like a really beautiful place to to hang out and going to school every day. I didn't know. I didn't know beyond the two years that I sort of said I would. I, you know what? The funny thing is that I, I couldn't afford to go back the second year. And then I went to visit my old high school principal. And that's a long story. But he sort of went, here, here's some money for you. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sort of, remember, you remember when, when 
the Catholic school board and the public school board were sort of separate, right? Yeah. So this was, they were making their transmission and my high school raised a lot of private money. I mean, they raised a lot of money with fundraisers and right. their clubs and they had this stockpile of cash that the public school board said, we want that. <laughs> and before, you know, the principal at the time, before he had to give it up, he was doling it out to anybody who needed it. And it was like, it was like, how much money? <laughs> That's amazing. And I'll never forget him. Father, Father Ted McLean, God bless his soul right now. Is like he allowed me to go back to New York and finish my education at the academy. And then by that time, you know, I could work under the table and the school gave me a scholarship. And then, you know, I, shortly thereafter, I got my uh, my my papers. But yeah, it's like those first those first couple of years, if not for if not for my father, Father Ted McLean, you know, I I, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was so funny. He was just trying to dole it out. Just like, what do you need? Do you need that? You're listening to Enrico Colantoni on The Richard Krause Show. His new movie, Vandits, that's like bandits, but with a V, is available now on VOD. It goes to show you, too, that, you know, any career like this is equal parts talent and just sheer dumb luck because uh, that that is a singular story, man. Nobody else has that story. You, you know what I mean? But at the same time, it's like a need creates yeah. a need creates action. You know, door yeah. it, doors will open. Doors will open if your heart is in it and you just things things will unfold. Things will unfold. Bandits, we're here to talk about bandits. Yeah. And this yeah. is a cool little movie that was yeah. kind of unexpected for me. I did not expect that it would be like a Christmas version of Rashomon, which is something that I hadn't really anticipated ever seeing in my life. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah. It's that the it's hysterical. the same moment, the same heist, yeah. told from a different points of view from everyone else's points of view and it's set at christmas time it was the night before christmas so what do you do get together with friends perhaps have an eggnog or two enjoy while you can whatever you choose because on this holy night all hell will break loose Seems like something's gonna go wrong here. $25,000, here we come. And then we get the Lambos, then we get those Lambos. How do you even know the money's here? Of course the money's here, they keep it in the money room in the bank. And you play kind of an outrageous character who's a, a bingo caller. I'd never been to a bingo hall. I don't really? know people like, but YouTube is like, you know, it's every actor's favorite resource now. Yeah. And they're, 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 they take this stuff serious. And it really, for Stu and Adam, those guys, I, I saw, um, um, what was it, Making of a Killer? I forget mm. what they call it. But it's such a lovely mockumentary style of, like, reality TV. And I go, these guys are awesome. I think they're really, really funny. And whatever they're doing next, I, I said, I want, I want to do it. And it was just a little role. But, you know, they added, they added a couple of bingo scenes. But that relationship between Rob Wells and I was just... Yeah priceless for me and just to be able to work with that guy but it was Stu and adam that just made me feel like you know what this is a lot of fun but rashomon that's like that's like <laughs> that's like what a what a what a compliment i would have said you know groundhog day mm -hmm. uh, a little a little uh a christmas carol in there what i loved when i saw your name attached to this 
you know, you have a career going in the United States and here, uh, you go back and forth. And I love that you uh, are working with young filmmakers doing something exciting, doing something that you're doing because you love it. Because yeah, I'm guessing yeah. you, get, you didn't get paid $20 million to show up and do this one. So I just love that. Money. I think I ended up paying them something. <laughs> but I love that. I, I yeah. love that you're uh, passionate about it. You yeah. saw the work and said, I want to do something with them. That's yeah. very cool. They're wonderful. They bring such a such a slant on everything. Yeah. It's like if it's if it's something you've seen, they'll just tweak it by two degrees and make it so much more interesting and so much I mean, what was it? It was a heist film. It was a Christmas movie. It was, mm. it was, I think the first 10 minutes, because people aren't used to, you know, the story we were yeah. trying to tell, it takes, a, it takes a little patience, you know? I mean, that's the worst thing I can say about it. But once you, <laughs> once you, you know what I mean? It's like, just give it the 10 minutes just to know what we're, what we're trying to do to you. And, and, but just, but just the resilience of these two guys, you know, they went to Winnipeg, they stole all their equipment. Somebody, the truck was stolen. Yeah, just, were you there for that? Because I've been reading about this. So the day before they're supposed to start shooting, everything disappears. They yeah, they get yeah, robbed. Yeah. They stole the truck. They didn't know what was in it. They just stole the truck, you know, took their chances. Uh, <laughs> they recovered it eventually, but they had to get backup equipment from Toronto yeah. to come in and, uh, you know, it was just, it's just, they're just the funniest people I've met yeah. in a long, long time. So if gonna... every Trailer Park Boys fan goes to see it because of Rob Wells, this is we'll going to be a giant money. hit. I think we'll make a lot of money. <laughs> That's what we're hoping. And Rob, I mean, can I just say that guy is just like, oh, you're not anything like the guy you play on. You're not yeah. like anything. You're like you're like warm and and kind and yeah. compassionate and and beautiful and just amazing. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I know. Well, I, I think you think you know him because of the years of the Trailer Park Boys, yeah. and that is etched. That is very much etched into the yeah. Canadian comedy mind, right? It's an. I, a, but then you you hang. You spend ten minutes with him, and it's just like, wow, you're this. You're probably the sweetest man I've ever met. I have to ask you a little bit about the costume. That's all their work. That's but all their work. Yeah. I have three wigs in my closet, Richard. <laughs> I have three wigs. <laughs> any opportunity, I get to use one of them. So I brought them all. I go, what do you think of this? Dirty blonde, conservative brown, you know, like, but we went with the dirty, sleazy blonde. And I thought with this, keeping this, because yep. this is my between jobs face. Yeah, yeah the, the the a little grayish yeah, you know, tinted yeah. beard. Yeah. I just finished Caitlin Cronenberg's directorial debut. We're yeah, really with Jay Baruchel, right? Jay and Emily Hampshire and Peter Gallagher. And so, yeah, so this is, this is, I'm, I'm I don't have to go to work for a while, but yeah. it's handy for a film that comes along and matches the wig. I go, can I keep, can I keep the beard is the first question I asked. <laughs> and they were, they were nice enough to say yes. Yeah. So this is a Christmas movie, Bandits, and I as I was watching it, uh, because it, you could come. We've talked about Rashomon, Groundhog Day. There's a little bad Santa in there. There's a lot of there's a lot of things going on here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. wondering because yeah. this is going to air, you know, in December as we lead up into Christmas. Do you have a Christmas movie that you like that you have to see every year? I, you know what, I hate to say this, but of course, it's a Wonderful Life. I'm going to New York next week to see my friend Donna Lynn play George Bailey in some sort of reading musical 
version of It's a Wonderful Life. And I can't wait to hear her say, Merry Christmas, you old building alone. Just like, just to go through that. And uh, I, that, that's, that, that, that's a, that's a keeper for me. My wife, Rosanna loves all the Hallmark stuff. Last year I did under the Christmas tree, which was like a wonderful experience. I got to play with the, uh, some lovely, lovely people. And I don't know if they'll probably keep airing that. For the next hundred years no that's the great thing about doing christmas yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. it's it's a perennial that comes back every year i love it <laughs> that's what i'm hoping bandits becomes i hope it becomes another christmas story uh just a little a little film that just a little far off center and yep. and quirky and and funny and just you know absurd just absolutely absurd which had you know Christmas and absurdity, I think, should go hand in hand. <laughs> well, it's got to be. It's got to be fun uh, to play that, to work in something that is that broad, because it, it, it looks like you're having fun. I know people say that it looks like you had a great time, yeah. but but it it must be fun to sort of be able to be a little bit bigger. That's, you know, it's always the risk, right? When when we were doing Galaxy Quest, you know, a million years ago, we were always aware of how much fun we were having, and yeah. will it translate? Will us having fun translate to an audience? And when it does, it's it's you get you get your pie and you eat it too. You get yeah. your cake and you eat it too. You're listening to Enrico Colantoni on the Richard Krause Show. His new movie, Vandits, like Bandits, but with a V, is available now on VOD. And with these guys, was it fun doing it? It just seemed like it was it was it was, it was, it would, the, the, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put a word on what it actually felt like. It felt surreal. Everything felt surreal. It felt like a dream because it, because they were doing it on a shoestring budget. Mm. And, and, and Rob Wells was there and Tony was there. And, the, the, you know, it, 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 it just seemed so wonderful. And I felt like I fell in love with that process of just being this guy who may or may not have been just high off his rocker is <laughs> like, I don't know. It wasn't written that way, but it's like, here's free reign to just ooze into it. Right. Yep. And that's what it felt like. It felt like an oozy sort of warm bath kind of thing that happened. So I guess when you're shooting a film like this, where you're where you're going for laughs, um, it's so different. It must be than doing something like just shoot me, which you did for years, because there's a live audience there, right? And you know immediately whether it works or not. Oh my god! And then just shoot me. Talk about the science of of comedy. Right. It was like it was, if it wasn't on the page, they didn't want to deal with it, and if it right. didn't get a laugh, they changed it. It was like it was just so precise. And you really couldn't change a word. And there was no room to improvise. Even and David, a guy like David Spade, who could just go off, yeah. you know, for 20 minutes, felt relieved that he would just have to just say the words and all the pressure was on the writers. And it was that that's an amazing experience when yeah. you have an audience reacting immediately. Then it is like a play. Then you know it's working or it's not. But any like the single camera comedies now I, I i i just did one for fx back in september and these guys are brilliant comedy like the the pedigree of these people making this but you never know right you never know i mean the, 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 just because they're laughing off camera doesn't mean that it's working you know you can't right. run 
but I don't know. You throw, I don't, I don't know. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all the magic of filmmaking, man. We don't know what, what really works, right? We don't know what really works. Well, if you, if you knew what worked, everything would be a hit. Oh my God. You'd bottle it and sell it and, (laughs) you know, just be a gazillionaire. Absolutely. After all the work you've done and you, you know, you've directed, you've done all the stuff in front of and behind the camera, uh, you still like to take chances? Yeah. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. Uh, I, I think, I, th- I think, I think just my nature is too big for film and television. Right. You know what I mean? I just, I would rather be on a stage. I would rather just, you know, take in an audience of 700 people and just absorb them and see mm. where that goes. So in film and TV, it's, there's always, there's always that tightrope that walking that tightrope of what's too big and what's too small and what's not. And so that's always a challenge to me. Um, Humane, Caitlin's film, the character is so wonderful and rich and big, but it's like, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to leave that to you guys. I'm yeah. going to leave, I'm going to leave that to the filmmakers and I'm just going to come in and just, and just give you something. That's yeah. how I always approach it. I'm going to give you something that uh yeah maybe off the off the wall or not and sometimes you know i don't know richard i mean <laughs> just like what else am i gonna f- do after yeah. all these years you know what i mean is you know even even when you talk to people it's like well, so you're still doing what you're doing i go well yeah what else, what else am i <laughs> i know I, I get that. I have those same conversations all the time. Sure you do, You're still doing it. It's like, well, yeah, you know, yeah, it's not yeah. like I'm hard to find, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what else yeah. am I going to do? Yeah. I love those questions. Yeah. yeah. You know. <laughs> but yeah, but it includes taking risks and doing things that support young filmmakers and support, you know, off the wall stories. You've been listening to Enrico Colantoni on the Richard Krause show. His new film, Vandits, that's like bandits, but spelled with a V, is available now on VOD. Check it out. It's a good time. In this segment, we'll meet Elegance Bratton, the film director who turned his story of being a young gay man who found unexpected strength, camaraderie, and support when he joined the Marines after being rejected by his family into a critically acclaimed film called The Inspection. It is a classic against all odds story that paints a vivid picture of life inside the boot camp, the dehumanization, the violence, but also the brotherhood. The movie carefully builds the world of the boot camp, creating a palette of claustrophobia, brutality, and tension that adds layers to the telling of his survival story. I spoke with Elegance Bratton via Zoom. To what extent is this film an accurate uh, portrayal of your life? It's such an extraordinary story. Uh, But to what extent are we seeing the real deal? This movie is 100% autobiographical when it comes to the hopes, fears, desires, the primary motivations of Ellis French, Mm. even if it's not a situation I've personally been in. However, the stuff between his mother is 100% out of my life. Um, But even that is, you know, if you you have a long enough relationship with someone, you can have the same argument for 10 years. You know what I mean? (laughs) And I'm kind of condensing the major turning points of that argument into (laughs) this particular storyline. But yeah, you know, and, and I think a lot of times with the autobiographical film, people are assuming that it's a simple process of recollection. You know, you remember what happened to you at 19, you write it down, 
you get some money, you hire a crew, you shoot it. That's not really what it is. Uh, For me, this is a process of excavating the emotional truth of the events. And in that regard, I have to think about the impact of what particular moment in my life has had for me versus the actual factual of what's going on, right? And And I think in most kind of trauma studies, it's proven, you know, as the brain is trying to remember, it's rewriting in real time. So I try to lean into that. And my, and my background is from a documentary background as well. So often in that, in that world of interview kind of driven films, the lies that people tell you, the, th- the inventions that they have sometimes more, are more true than the particular thing that happened. You know, right. so it's that's an emotional truth. It's an emotional truth, the essence of emotional truth. That's kind of like the, the journey that I'm on as a, as a writer and director. You had been cut adrift from your family before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were living in homeless shelters. There's, there's mm-hmm. much backstory here. But would mm-hmm. you say that when you entered the Marines and made it through boot camp, that you found, or I guess the question is, what strength did you find kind of embedded within you that perhaps you hadn't realized before? Um, I think, you know, for me, this whole movie is about an interrogation of of masculinity and the limitations of masculinity and hopefully suggesting the possibilities of a new masculinity. Um, One of my favorite writers is Simone de Beauvoir. And in the second sex, she says that one is not born a woman, one becomes a woman. And I think that that is the same truth for men. And the Marine Corps is like the Harvard of masculinity, you know? And um, so when you ask what is the source of the strength, what is the strength that I discovered? I think one of the things I want to suggest is the possibility that forgiveness can be a source of strength. Because for me, forgiveness is the source of my strength. Ellis French is a character who does not give up on people, right? And that, it, that refusal to give up on others results in a refusal to give up on himself. And I think that is not only a thing, it's intentionally instructive, right? This is what I believe is the essence of, of, of hope and possibility for the times that we live in. You know, when I joined the Marine Corps, I joined after 10 years spent on the streets. I felt completely worthless, that my life had no value, meaning, or purpose. And then I had, was fortunate enough to have a drill instructor tell me that that was all a lie, that my life was important because I had a responsibility to protect the Marine to my left and to my right. And that implied trust of that responsibility was transformational for me. I held on to that and I ran with it from the homeless shelter to boot camp to this interview right now. You're listening to Elegance Bratton on the Richard Krauss show. His movie, The Inspection, is in theaters now. And that's why I made the film. I want to, in in a time where I feel the world globally is becoming way more polarized, I wanted to offer that all of us are important because we all are interconnected and French is the vessel through which, you know, this film hopefully achieves that goal. Well, stories and storytelling and films, whatever form it takes, uh, are little empathy machines. I think Mm -hmm. if we see someone's story, uh, your story is much different than mine. Uh, but we can share the stories and we start to understand one another better. And I think that probably is the true importance of a, a film like this is that it gives us a window into a different world. 
thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, and I and I wholeheartedly agree. You know, um, when French arrives at boot camp, he believes that he is weak because he is gay and that he could never live up to the standard of what being a, a good Marine, a perfect Marine and a good man could be. Then as he goes through boot camp, he discovers that he's not the only man who can't measure up to this standard, that in fact, they've all been given an impossible task, mm -hmm. how to become a man, right? And each one of them, each one of these characters, in the process of discovering that they're insecure about their place and everything, French deploys what I like to call, you know, radical and defiant empathy, right? I will meet you where you're weak, and I will then offer you my strength to be strong, you know? And I think that is, the, the, the possibility of that in our world is, is it, it fills me with hope. You know, I'm ultimately an optimistic person and French is an optimistic person as a result. Do you sometimes sit and shake your head as you're sitting in a hotel room talking about this film, knowing where you began and all the way up through to today? Yes, yes. I was I was on The View yesterday morning and I got a chance. I mean, I've, I've, I've met Whoopi Goldberg yeah. once before and ended up like just a complete shaking, crying mess. Just, <laughs> she just, she's everything to me. But I got a chance to be in The View yesterday and um, yeah, it's surreal <laughs> at a certain point because when I was living this, I was, I really felt like I was the only person in the world that would care about this, you know? And to have gone through that journey of not only learning to care about myself, but learning to care and value my story, to see it resonate in this way on this side of it, you know, it's 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 so incredibly affirming and um and I'm so very grateful for it, you know, and that's what that's why I had to make this my first film. You know, I made this movie for anybody who's ever felt disregarded, anyone who's ever felt uh, downtrodden, um, who's been told that they're not enough. I want them to watch this movie and by the end of it, know that they're enough, you know, and, and know that they, they matter because they have a responsibility to protect the person to their left and to their right. And that makes them important on its own without any other justification. And that's exciting to share that message. That was Elegance Bratton on The Richard Krause Show. His movie, The Inspection, is in theaters now. Big thanks to Elegance for sharing his inspiring story with us. Also, a big thanks to Enrico Colantoni. His new film, Vandits, that's like bandits but with a V, is on VOD right now. Also, a big thanks to Jeremy Brown and John Cleave, two of the founding members of the Sea Shanty singing group, Fisherman's Friends. Of course, as always, my big Biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Kraus. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>